Well, if you have uh, Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're continuing our series uh, in the books of 1 and 2 Timothy. And because we are at chapter 3 today, that means we indeed did survive uh, chapter 2. We survived chapter 2. I hope, I really hope, um, that it wasn't just survival. Uh, I really hope uh, that last week, this past week, uh, whether it was through the sermon, uh, through being part of one of our Bible studies, through conversations that you had with one another throughout the week, that you were afforded some opportunities to really see and understand more deeply uh, the redemption that God is pursuing. That even in the way that, that God orders and structures the church, even in the details and logistics of how things are organized and structured, God is intent on eradicating the effects of the fall on relationships specifically between men and women by upholding these distinctions that he has designed himself that he's called very good. And if you think men uh, were not singled out enough in last week's text, right after saying that women should not teach or should not exercise authority in the church, Paul immediately turns around and follows it up by saying, neither should a lot of men. Neither should a lot of men. And he proceeds then to talk about an essential servant leadership role that women should hold, that women need to hold in the life and the leadership of the church. So studying this passage this week uh, has made me grateful for the leaders that we have here at, at Liberty Church. The elders, the deacons, the staff, ministry leaders, our Bible study leaders. Uh, it's been especially encouraging because today uh, we also have the privilege not only of learning about gospel-shaped leadership, but actually recognizing a few gospel-shaped leaders. So I'm going to aim, God willing, uh, for a shorter sermon today because right after I do, uh, we get to commission four new deacons for Liberty Church. So not only then as a theoretical exploration, but really as a celebration of how God has raised up leaders like this in our own midst, I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Depending on your translation, the next word will either be women likewise or their wives likewise. Must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, 
managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your, of your holy word. Guide us now by your spirit that it may be written on our hearts to our everlasting comfort to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, we pray. Amen. Two things uh, for us to consider today in light of 1 Timothy 3. The significance of the church and the shape of its leaders. The significance of the church and the shape of its leaders. So first, the significance of the church. To, to rightly frame what Paul says here, and really in the, the last two chapters, all that he's written up to this point, we should start at the end of the text rather than the beginning. So verses 14 through 16 are the purpose statement for everything Paul has written up to this point. He writes these things to Timothy, so, quote, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Leadership in the church is only significant if the church itself is significant. Leadership in the church is only significant if the church itself is significant. Otherwise, if this is merely an institution, if it's merely a volunteer organization, all the fuss that goes into training and seeing people qualified for leadership positions in the church would not be worth it. But the reason that Paul cares so much about how the church is ordered and how the church is led is because the church is these three things that he mentions here. The household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. So first, it's the household of God. One of the pictures of our salvation is adoption, that we are welcomed into the very family of God. We are welcomed into God's house by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so the church and the local expressions of it are where we embody this. They're where we love and care for one another and serve one another the way that natural families are meant to. And this is the reason that you will encounter in Scripture so many connections and parallels between the natural family and the church. And it's why, as we read, for many people, the family is part of the testing and the training ground for leaders in the church because how we conduct ourselves, how we carry ourselves in our natural household is part of what either qualifies or disqualifies us from leadership in God's. Second, this is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. And the living God is, is a common phrase that we find, especially in the Old Testament. It's picked up in various places in the New Testament as well. And what it means is that just as under the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God dwelt with the people in the temple in Jerusalem. Now under the New Covenant, the Spirit of God dwells in us, in the people of God, in the church. And so the church 
is where God is most presently and powerfully and actively working. So the church is not just an institution. Think about this. We are stewards of the very presence of God in the world. It's not just in a volunteer organization. We are stewards of the very, very presence of God in the world. And then the third thing Paul writes here, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And this would have been a great picture for the recipients of this letter in the city of Ephesus. Because Ephesus at this point in time is booming. Building projects everywhere. The city's growing massively. As I mentioned last week, one of the most famous buildings there in Ephesus was the temple of this Greek goddess Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Paul writes here, the church is both a buttress, it protects, it confirms the truth of God, and the church is a pillar, just like one of the nearly 60-foot-tall columns that held up the roof of Artemis' temple, the church holds up and it lifts high the truth of God. What truth? What truth are we talking about? That's what Paul clarifies next. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And Paul says mystery there, not in the sense that it's unknowable, but in the sense that once, what was once hidden has now been revealed. And Paul goes on then to quote an early creed or an early hymn of the church. The revealed mystery, the content of that truth that the church proclaims and protects is all about, we see here, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His incarnation and his crucifixion. So it says he was manifested in the flesh that he might then give himself, as we read last week, as a ransom for all. He was vindicated when the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. He was revealed and known both in the heavenly realm, he was seen by angels, as well as on earth. He was proclaimed among the, the nations on earth. And he was received then both by people on earth who believe and even more significantly by the Father himself as he ascended back to the right hand of God to rule and reign for all eternity. So here's why this text is so important. As Western-minded folks, individualistic as we are inclined to be, and especially for those of us like myself who are Protestant, we are prone to place way too little value on the church. We are way too comfortable dismissing the church from the central place it has in the design of God. It is the church of God we see here that has been entrusted with the gospel to proclaim it and to protect it. It's the church, it's the household of God that carries the primary role of advancing the gospel in the world. And so as the, the saying goes, the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B, and there is no plan B. So, so there are a lot of great Christian ministries and nonprofits and schools and parachurch organizations out there, all of which can and many of which do play a really significant and helpful part. But because of what it is, because what Paul is laying out here, we should always esteem the church itself more highly more central, more essential in the plan of God. And I'm sure some of you are thinking like, well, as a pastor of a church, isn't that like really self-serving? And it, and it is. It's really self-serving. But what I would say is you've got to take that up with Paul. Not me. Take that up with Paul. And this is why, for example, I am so grateful for those of you from Messiah College and other colleges who value the local church and, and pursue being part of the local church during those college years. It's easy not to. 
It's easy not to with campus ministries there, with, for at least at Christian colleges like Messiah, required chapel services, all of which are good things. Don't hear me saying anything but that. But it's not the church. It's not the church. It's not, as we're about to see, placing yourself underneath servant leaders in a local expression of the household of God. And the same thing might apply to any one of us at any age. It's not just something for college students to think about. The church is fundamentally different than attending conferences or reading books or podcasting to hear good teaching, which you can do a lot of in our day. It's more than personal quiet times and personal spirituality. It's more than banding together with other people to accomplish some good purpose. It's the place, Paul says here, where the living God through his word, through his spirit, through the sacraments, is powerfully at work. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth of God. And so if you stiff arm or devalue or dismiss the church, you are actually far more at risk of rejecting the gospel itself than you might like to think. I'm not saying you are rejecting it. I'm saying you are much more at risk of rejecting it than you might like to think. To put these pieces together then, we are to understand the church through the lens of the truth it proclaims. And then we understand leadership in the church through the lens of the church that those leaders are called to serve. And so second, let's consider the shape of the church's leaders. Shape of the church's leaders. Instead of a job description, what we get in 1 Timothy 3 are lists of character qualifications. And so in contrast to the way that we're inclined to do things in most of our dealings in business and other places in society, being a leader in Jesus' church is so much less about skills than it is about the character of your life. There will almost always be smarter people in the room than the elders and deacons. And that's totally true here as one of those elders speaking about that. There will almost always be better communicators better educators, better administrative and organizational gurus. Because that is not, at the end of the day, what qualifies someone to be an elder or to be a deacon. There are a lot of brilliant people in the world who shirk responsibility. And, and it does not require the same character. Frankly, it's a lot easier to become skilled at something than it is to be accountable for the lives of other people in real life. Now here, there's a lot of overlap between qualifications for elder and qualifications for deacon. But before I talk about the similarities, let me mention the differences. First are the roles themselves. So the New Testament teaches that there are two offices in the church. One of them, which is variously called overseer, elder, pastor. And then another office that is called deacon. And the first glimpse that we get of this comes in the book of Acts chapter 6. The apostles who were leading the early church, they recognize that they are not caring for the church, for the people of the church, as comprehensively and as well as they would like to. And so they lay hands on and they commission other people to serve as deacons. And we start to learn from that text, and it's fleshed out in others throughout the New Testament, that the primary work of an elder is to oversee the ministry of the word of God in prayer. They are responsible to, to spiritually shepherd the people of the church. Deacons, then, are tasked with serving more tangibly, uh, meeting the needs of people both in the church and in the surrounding community, helping the church use its resources in the best way possible. 
The one really substantial difference that jumps out from these lists is that elders and overseers must be able to teach. You'll notice there that that is not required of deacons. And this is where what Paul wrote back in chapter two that we looked at last week comes into fuller focus. So elders teach, elders have a greater amount of authority in the church. And that's why Paul only writes about here in chapter three, men serving as elders and overseers. In chapter two, he said that women should not exercise authority in the church or teach in that way. And here he's saying, nor should a lot of men exercise authority or teach in that way. Only men who are qualified according to these characteristics here should do that. But at the same time, because that teaching qualification is not on this list for deacons, notice how Paul writes to both men and women in verses 8 through 13. So depending on your translation, as I mentioned, verse 11 might say, their wives likewise. But the original language, the original Greek of this letter literally just says, women likewise. People debate this, but I'm convinced that Paul intends women to be deacons along with men. And there's some language and some sentence structure kinds of reasons for that. But also, think about this, it would be really odd for Paul to give qualifications for deacons' wives when he said nothing at all about elders' wives in the section prior. It's like, if your wife's a little bit nuts, you should just be an elder and not be a deacon instead. He's not saying that. That's what I'm saying. Don't go, that's not what I'm saying. Man, gotta hear that the right way. He's saying it differently because he's speaking to men and women in the section about deacons. He's saying here the authority and the teaching responsibility falls to male elders. But both men and women serving shoulder to shoulder must lead the church as deacons to see the people of the church, to see the people of the surrounding world loved and served and cared for in the name of Jesus. Those are some of the differences, but then note the incredible amount of similarity in these qualifications. There are a number of ways we can categorize them. I'll borrow a framework that I really appreciated from John Stott. He, he lists five different areas to consider. So number one, in regard to personal discipline, so elders and deacons must be self-controlled and mature, including uh, how they handle alcohol, how they handle money, how they handle their temper, how they handle their tongue. Paul says of deacons specifically, they must be tested and proven. And then for overseers or elders specifically, they must not be new converts or they might become proud. And he goes on to say there, they might become proud and actually commit the same kind of sin that Satan himself committed. So Satan wanted to be God. He thought, think about this, he thought he was up to the task of being God. If you attempt to lead the church thinking you are up to the task of being God over the lives of the people in the church, you will not only destroy other people, you will destroy yourself. And so there needs to be a deep humility in the leaders of the church that comes from being a Christian for a little while that comes from submitting yourself to other leaders and more importantly, submitting yourself to the sanctifying work of God for a while. Number two, in regard to family, faithfulness to your spouse and able to discipline your children. Husband of one wife, or in the case of a female deacon, wife of one husband, uh, does not mean that to be married is a requirement, that you must be married in order to serve in these roles. Paul himself was never married. It does mean that if you are married, you are, as the literal words of this text mean, a one-woman man. It's about faithfulness in the context of marriage. And because of this strong parallel then between the natural household and God's household, 
a necessary qualification is how you love and how you care for and how you discipline your own children. So there's a lot more that we could say about this and the way it's been misinterpreted and misapplied in different settings and contexts. But for today, I'll just say this. How a person parents weighs more than the visible results. How a person parents weighs more here than the visible results. There are some who make their children quote-unquote submissive by domineering or manipulative methods. And those kind of people have no business at all being elders or deacons in the church of Jesus Christ. Number three, in regard to relationships. Dignified, hospitable, gentle. The church is people, right? It's not just an institution. And so how leaders treat people, how a person treats people and interacts with people matters deeply as a qualification. Number four, in regard to outsiders. Above reproach, respectable, highly esteemed. So just like in any business, just like in any organization, people judge the church by what they see in its leaders. And so the life of the leaders should commend the gospel at all times. The lives of the leaders should not be open to accusation. That's what it means to be above reproach. It should always be clear, in other words, that any offenses that are given by leaders of the church are only the necessary offenses of the gospel. Necessary offenses like the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, like we read last week. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Necessary offenses, not unnecessary ones. The satire site, Babylon B, had a great headline uh, about a year or so ago. It said this, man unsure if he's persecuted because he's a Christian or because he's a massive jerk. That bears out in the life of evaluating elders and deacons as well. Uh, the, necessary, the necessary offenses. So leaders in the church should only bear what Hebrews calls the reproach of Christ, not bring reproach upon themselves by the way that they interact with other people, the way that they live. Lastly, number five, in regard to the faith, the faith itself. Leaders must have a strong hold on the truth. And for overseers, for, for elders, it's, this is obvious because they are the ones that must teach it to other people. But it says also deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's just as important for those who serve as deacons to hold on to the mystery of the faith, to understand it, to believe it with a clear conscience. So I'll summarize it all this way. Gospel-shaped leaders are qualified because they truly live a gospel-shaped life. Not a perfect life, not having already arrived, but a life that demonstrates maturity of Christian character. These lists are not exhaustive, but they do give a really good overview. And lest any of us be tempted to use them self-righteously or arrogantly as we scrutinize people that hold those roles. With the exception of the ability to teach, this is what every single Christian is called to pursue in his or her life. In other places throughout the scriptures, this is a list specifically for leaders here in 1 Timothy 3. Elsewhere in scripture, you as a Christian man or woman would be called to all of these things exactly with the exception of being able to teach. As N.T. Wright puts it, any quote-unquote ordinary Christian who thinks they can leave the practice of real holiness to the quote-unquote professionals is heading for disaster. And that's really true. These lists are daunting. They're daunting. 
And they're daunting because they're meant to discourage people who are immature in the faith or who want to lead for selfish gain or for power. But, and this is where I want to close, this text also highlights the good, the nobility, the proper esteem of these roles to encourage mature Christians that it's good and right to aspire to this. When, when someone becomes an elder, when someone becomes a deacon in this church, as we will commission four deacons today, what we are saying is follow them. Follow them as they follow Christ. Their lives are worthy of emulation. That's what Paul means when he says those who serve as deacons well gain a good standing for themselves. Furthermore, as he writes, those who serve as gospel-shaped leaders gain great confidence in the faith. And let me just for a second attest to that from my own life. The more responsibility that I have been given in the household of God, the more that two things have happened to me. One is that the more burdened I've become, the harder uh, and the more difficult and the more weighty every day and almost every situation I walk into feels. I used to have this longing before I became a pastor that what I did each and every day would feel more significant. And now I laugh and I think God laughs a little bit too because I think I'm, I'm good on the significance front. I could actually do with a little bit less of that in a given day. But the second thing that's happened, I am more convinced than I ever have been that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. That the truth of the gospel and this pillar and buttress that is the church really is the power of God unto salvation. I get the privilege of a front row seat to both the worst and the most tragic things in your lives and the best and the most joyful things in your lives. And through all of that, I get to see the grace of God come to bear. Not just in lofty or airy hopes or over-idealized nostalgia from biographies or even Bible stories, but the grace of God in real life and in real time. And not only see the grace of God work through me as I'm invited into that sacred space of the lives of other people, but the grace of God through all of that work in me. I am more confident in the gospel. I have been more sanctified by the work of Jesus Christ being a pastor than I ever had been before that. And those who serve with responsibility in the household of God continually submitted to the work of Jesus in their lives will say exactly the same thing. So, some of you, should aspire to this. Not without solemn and sober reflection about what you're signing up for, but recognizing the work that God has done in your life and the work that he will continue to do in your life as you remain continually submitted to him. If you aspire to the office of elder or the office of deacon, you desire a noble task. Nothing gives these roles more nobility than the fact that Jesus himself in scripture is described as both an elder and a deacon. 1 Peter 2, the apostle Peter calls Jesus the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And it's the same word overseer that we have here in 1 Timothy 3. And so men, some of you imitating Jesus should aspire to become under shepherds, overseers in the church who lead in full surrender of your life and full surrender of your abilities to God's calling and God's purposes for the church. Others of you, men and women, imitating Jesus, should aspire to become deacons 
and to gain a good standing and great confidence in your faith. How do deacons imitate Jesus? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus himself says he came not to be served, but to serve. And that word there is the same word from which we get the term and the office, deacon. So in God's economy, the greatest among us is the servant of all. And we know that because the author and perfecter of our faith is the author and perfecter of our faith because he became our servant. He became our substitute. He became our sacrifice. Because this is the truth that we proclaim and protect. May we see the significance of the church and value it with all the worth it has in the eyes and in the plan of God. And because it's this church that elders and deacons then are called to serve. May we esteem them highly. May we imitate their lives as they imitate Christ. And may we pray that God would not only sustain the leaders that are already here, but that he would in time raise up even more of these gospel-shaped leaders. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. Grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, that we might gratefully share it with others and ever give glory to you, by whose grace alone we are what we are. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.